Welcome everyone to the Wednesday of Open Week. One more day and we get to watch some Open Championship golf at Royal Liverpool, also known as Hoy Lake. Today we have a special guest, uh, Blythe Bell. He has been a member at Royal Liverpool for 35 years. Uh, he's a past club champion. He's a past uh, club captain. Um, it's, a, it's a special one, so please enjoy uh, Blythe Bell. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another edition of the Travel Royally podcast today. We're very excited to have as our guest today, Blythe Bell. Blythe has been a member of Royal Liverpool for 35 years, and he's a past club champion, as well as being a past captain of the club. And additionally, he served on the Heritage Committee of that venerable club with such a rich history. He co-authored a book called A Hoy Lake Celebration that that truly celebrates Hoy Lake's 150 first years as a club. He's also a member of the Atlanta Athletic Club. Blythe, welcome to the Travel Royally podcast. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Well, we, we truly are delighted to have you, Blythe. It's, um, uh, we know we have a mutual friend in common, and uh, I'm thrilled that he was able to connect the two of us. Now, originally, you're from Scotland. So mm -hmm. how did you come to golf and what took you to Northwest England? Right. Well, it's a, it's a sort of long story, but the, I, I, uh, I was brought up just north of Dundee and I went to Aberdeen University where I, I, I studied medicine and I was trained to be a family doctor, really. And at that time in the late 80s, uh, somewhat unbelievably, they, they were... It was difficult to get jobs. There were too many family doctors. Now you now you can't get them for love or money. But uh, so there weren't a lot of jobs around, and I sort of looked around, and I needed to be near a half decent links course. And I I got I got an interview in Eastlothian, and I actually got an interview in uh, Sandwich in Kent, but that really wasn't for me. And uh, and this one came up in Cheshire, and it was a good practice. Yeah. And uh, I thought, well, it's, it's not that far from Hoy Lake. It, uh, this might probably work. So yeah. uh, so that was 36 years ago, and uh, and I've, be, I've been here ever since. So uh, I've, I've been retired for about four years now. And how did you come to play golf? Was it through your, your family? Yeah, it was my dad, really. My dad was a – he came to golf quite late on in life, uh, my father was a very good curler uh, on the ice, which is, which is a big game in the northeast of Scotland. And he took up golf very late on in life. But I took up golf as a boy. And the town where I grew up, you know, everyone played golf. So I I was brought up in a, a little place just north of Dundee called Forfer. Uh, and they had their 150th about two wow. years ago so they, they were 1871 and it's a tom morris course that was revised by braid in the 20s and it's a really quite a nice little golf course standard strat 69 par 69 so I, I spent my boyhood going around there three times a day when i when i could and um and then i went to aberdeen university where the they had a very strong golf team uh and you know, student golf was great. Uh, regional golf was very strong yeah. uh, in Angus, and and that's really my, you know, that's my golfing background. Um, and 
you know, that was it really. So, uh, so I played golf wherever I've been, and uh, I've I played a lot of golf courses, uh, mainly links courses in the UK, but I've, I've played a lot more, and I've played quite a bit in the US as well. So, um, so I'm a well-traveled golfer. <laughs> yeah, I, I am as well. I've, I've, I, I prefer links golf to inland golf. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I can't wait to get back over every time, and I'll be over in a couple of weeks. As I, as you know, we're going to be playing down in Cornwall, which we're looking forward to. But yeah, so totally. you're 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 fortunate to belong to Hoy Lake. It's a fabulous club with a rich history. Let's yeah. talk about how the course came to be and and its ties to St Andrews, if you would. Okay, well, there are a few ties to St Andrews in some ways, and. Uh, the club started in 1869, and in 1869, Liverpool was a boom town. It was the second port of the empire. Uh, it traded sugar, it traded cotton, it traded it traded just about everything with the rest of the world. It was it's one of the main lines to the US, uh, main shipping lines, passenger liners, uh, and the you know the population of Liverpool went up exponentially and. It attracted all sorts of people, and a lot of the men that came down to make the fortune uh, through trading through the city of Liverpool were Scots, and they came down to to see what they could do in Liverpool. And a lot of them, you know, were, were businessmen and traders in Scotland, but there were opportunities opening up to trade with the U.S. and uh, a lot of our early members were, you know, they dealt in sugar. Uh, sugar was a big thing and cotton. And uh, so a few of them got together and decided that the land at Hoylake was suitable for the game of golf. And uh, it's, it's quite a flat area. And it was, must have been pretty wild in 1869. And uh, they decided to have a golf course. And uh, the, the first captain... Uh, a little red-haired guy with a beard called James Muir Dowie. Uh, he wasn't a great golfer, but he was he was from the uh, east of Scotland originally, and he married Robert Chambers Senior's daughter uh, from St Andrews, the the famous Scottish writer golfer, right. uh, and he married her daughter. So. And so it was through those connections that um, they eventually they got Robert Chambers Jr., who was a very good player, and George Morris, who's the brother of old Tom. Uh, he came down and designed the course, the nine-hole course, uh, with uh, Robert Chambers Jr. And that's, that's how it all started. Uh, predominantly Scots were the first members and they, the ambition whether they were by this time a lot of them were very wealthy and the ambition was to make Hoylake as, as good as St Andrews or Presswick and, uh, and they, they were very very ambitious and they, they wouldn't be you know they, they wouldn't be thwarted in, the, in their in their quest to do this. So within two years, the club became 18 holes and they opened the holes 
up the other side of the beach to uh, the other side of the road to West Kirby uh, by the beach. And they managed to get one of the, the royals of the day, the Duke of Connaught, um, son of Queen Victoria, to, to be our first patron. And we became Royal Liverpool. Within two years of, of starting, we were a yeah. royal club and we were 18 holes and, uh, and we were in the big times. So, uh, so that, 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 that was the beginning of all things, if you like. Um, Wasn't there a race course on the property initially as well? Yeah. Uh, the Liverpool Hunt Club raced uh, on, on the area as well. It was used for all sorts of things. Um, uh, and the race course, uh, I think, was started in the, in the 1840s, but they, we coexisted with racing until about 1876. And, uh, and then the races went away. But, but some of the, the cops... Are yeah, uh, they are remnants of the original paddock. Uh, you know, our, our what we call the field in the middle of the course was was a paddock uh, for the horses, and uh, and our last hole for the championship. Um, no, sorry, I get confused here. Uh, so the second hole for the championship, which is our members' last hole. Um, is still called stand, and uh, and that is where the the stand for the races was uh, when the fourth when the course first started. The, 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 there was a wooden stand there for the the winning post of the races, and the and the first hole for us, and the third hole in the championship, top like around the corner of the pounds, uh, is called the course hole, and it's not because it's a golf course, because it's a race course. So. Uh, so it's called the course hole. And uh, so we, the problem was that you, you got shocking lies uh, because of all the hoof prints and things like that. And yeah. there were railings and uh, there's a famous old watercolor by Hopkins that shows, uh, I think it was Horace Hutchinson breaking his club when he took a backswing with the, because he was under the railings and he, he uh, broke one of his hickories and that was captured by, by Hopkins and watercolor, but uh, so the but by 1876 the racing was gone and uh, it, it was a golf course predominantly. Uh, well, I, my recollection is the first hole for members plays along the cops, right? In that out of bounds on the right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Scariest opening hole in golf, uh, and one of the best 19th holes in golf. Um, yes, but. Uh, it always gets your attention. Starting with a five is never bad. Yeah. Uh, and if you birdie it, it just it puts you completely off whack, and you usually don't score well because the shock is the shock is too much for your game. But uh, well, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm going to have to disagree with you on the scariest first hole in golf. I think uh, the first hole at Bally Bunyan along the graveyard is a little scarier, but yeah, probably for different yeah. reasons, right? Perhaps, perhaps, but uh, you need to have a really well shot at Ballybunion to go in the graveyard. Uh, you just need to lean a little one to the right at Hoylake to go in the field. So uh, yeah. I, I think it's and it, it, it's very good hole because the further left you go, the more the longer your second shot is. You know, the the safer you are. Yeah. You know, you, you sometimes you can't even reach the green. So yeah. you know that's the 
the genius of the, you know, it's so simple and yet it's so effective. Well, since it became an 18-hole layout and the racing was halted, how's, how's the course changed in the last 150 years? Gosh, um, it's changed by degrees. It's changed by events of the day. It's changed, you know, by the needs of the modern golf, if you like. So it, it, it's changed significantly. Uh, you know, I'm thinking it changed quite a bit in the 1890s um, in in the run up to the our first Open Championship in 1897, but the and it was sort of by 1921, you know, the for 1921 amateur, the, the course was in pretty poor condition and, uh, you know, something had to be done really. And they, they engaged Harry Colt, the, the, the true genius of golf architecture. And uh, Colt came in and he recited I think it was about four or five greens and moved them into the higher land in the dunes, especially in the, in the, the second nine holes. Um, and his, you know, like what Colt did all over the place, you know, at, at Lytham and, and uh, Muirfield and, you know, it was transformational really. Right. Um, and that was a big change. And then, more recently, uh, in the 60s, uh, Fred Hawtrey, Martin Hawtrey's father, came in and we changed our third and fourth holes. The third used to be a straightaway par five with a, 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 a short hole after it. And he turned that into a dog leg and made a great par three, which is called the, the new hole, uh, still to this day, um, although it's 65 years old it's the new hole yeah and uh and it changed the angle of the fifth hole the, the telegraph hole and it changed the driving of that and changed that into more of a dog like so those changes were were well received certainly and i'm sorry what year did what, did that work take place i think i'm thinking maybe 64 65 so before so the, before the 67 open before the 67 open championship yeah yeah uh so and then, uh, more recently, uh, certainly since 2000, uh, we've had three new architects. We've got six new greens, and the, the routing's been changed in 2019 on the back nine, really to accommodate lengthening our two par fives on the back nine. Yeah. So, um, so there, there's been a lot of change you know, certainly since certainly since two thousand, um, and you know, it, it is what it is. It, it's certainly a a more difficult golf course than it was prior to that, um, and you know, we'll, we'll we'll see how they get on. We'll see how they get on this year. Well, I've I've played I've played there twice, and absolutely. Love the entire experience, not only the golf, but it's a beautiful piece of land for golf. But in addition to that, uh, the clubhouse behind me is is a wonderful spot. As you said, the 19th hole is is fantastic. The members are friendly. It, it's just a very 
And I think the other thing for people like me from the States and particularly those of us from Atlanta, um, at least uh, the last time I was there, there was a fair amount of uh, Bobby Jones paraphernalia, um, certainly recognition, recognition of his achievements there. Yeah. Uh, well, Bobby Jones is, you know, the, the to be lucky enough to be one of the host venues of Bobby Jones's Grand Slam year. Uh, we've been blessed with that. And all of our connections, all of our travels, all of our, you know, it, it, gave, it gave us a credibility uh, that uh, we were blessed, absolutely blessed. And uh, so we've got, we've got lots of Jones stories. Um, we have a great big, beautiful portrait of uh, Bobby Jones on our stair. Yeah. Uh, we've got a Bobby Jones corner with uh, a, a sort of collage I did for the story of the 1930 Open Championship and his original scorecards and everything. So, That's yeah, Bobby Jones was hugely important to us in that particular Open Championship. Uh, you know, probably the part of the greatest achievement in the world of sport, not just golf, really. Um, and he was revered, and that, and that's probably why I'm a member of Atlanta Athletic Club. Uh, we've been going back and forward there for 30 years now, and uh, the great connections, great connections. Well, he returned. He returned a hero. He returned to a ticker tape oh, yeah. parade in down. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, through absolutely. New York. Yeah, yeah. He, came, he It was. Uh, it was very interesting because, you know, he he struggled a bit at St Andrews to to win the amateur, and he had like three or four really close matches, and and you know he had a belief that his name was on it. You know, he he thought, you know, he had a desperately tight match with Cyril Tolley. Uh, he played George Voigt, the American, in the semi-final. They had a desperately tight match. It was, you know, it could have gone either way. Yeah. And yet, you know, he he had the feeling that, you know, this was his championship. And uh, and uh, so he, he got the first leg and then he came down to Hoylake. And, uh, and he struggled in many ways through the through the championship uh, he didn't qualify particularly well um he started well in the championship and he was under a little bit of pressure after the third round and and uh archie compson went around in 68 and that sort of took the lead from jones but he he started well in the afternoon and he was par going to our far hole which is the Members eighth hole, par five towards the end, which is actually going to be a par four for the, the Open Championship this year. And he had two great shots to the left edge of the green, which is a uh, there's a there's a sort of runoff on the left and a, a raised green, and and he, he sort of duffed his chip and hit his next one too hard, and then he three putted and made seven, and uh, and he, he was in a daze by his own admission after that, and. He just sort of, you know, he just gutted it out. And uh, he played a great sand shot at 16. Uh, he buried both par fives on the on the second nine, although he dropped shots in both par threes. And uh, and then he went into the clubhouse. He, he was one of the earlier starters. And, uh, and they gave him a large glass of whiskey. 
and uh, he sort of nervously clutched that for an hour and a bit, waiting for everyone else to come in. But uh, but uh, McDonald Smith came close, and Leo Deagle came close. They both yeah. they both were the ones that could have challenged him, and uh, but they didn't do it. And Bernard Darwin scuttled across the course to a house on Stanley Road, just opposite the course, and and that's where he gave his copy. Uh, his broadcast and his copy for the for the times. He couldn't he couldn't say that Bobby Jones had won until Bobby Jones had won. So right. uh, so he he had a a broadcast arranged from one of the houses um, at the time, and uh, so Bobby Jones won the Open at Hoylake, which was fantastic. So, well, I'm um, glad you brought up Bernard Darwin because mm-hmm. he has a very strong affection to the club. Obviously, and he called Royal Liverpool the breeder of mighty champions. Yeah. So, for people who were less familiar with Boy Lake, what do you think he meant by that? Okay, well, I, some people, some people think that's because a lot of our champions were great golfers and great players of their day, and that is one way to interpret it. But if you read quite a bit about Darwin and the, he loved Boy Lake. Um, the quote is uh, blown upon by mighty winds, breeder of mighty champions. And that was one of the chapters he did in, in one of his books. And I think he really means that, you know, Hoylake was a venue that bred champions in as much as Ball, John Ball, Harold Hilton, and Jack Graham, to a lesser extent, they were fantastic golfers, fantastic amateur golfers, and they were bred at Hoylake. Right. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think that's what Darwin really meant with the, with that phrase. Um, the, they were homebred champions. They were, they were great golfers. They were, you know, they were golfing travelers of the day. They, they won championships all over the place. And, and I think that is really what it, what it means um yeah and also that was probably written probably may have been between the wars it may have been before world war one um you know and here he, you know i i don't think when he wrote that that bobby jones had won the open or walter hagen had won the open yeah. or so um right. that's, that's how i interpret it that's funny that you say it because that's how i interpret it as well i i thought yeah. that you know, the fact that Harold Hilton and John Ball were contemporaries, although very from very different backgrounds. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, they were, uh, yes, Eddie, what fortune to get two of the best amateur right. players in history to to be around at the same time winning championships from Hoylake. I think the, I think, you know, I have a theory that the, you know, you need to have two or three things in place before you you get good players coming through. And I think, you know, they need to be they need to be brought up near the links. They need to be in an environment or a club that encourages everyone to play golf, uh, young people, old people, whatever. And they need to be, you know, there needs to be a supportive professional there. But they need to have peers, and they need to have a peer group that 
plays golf and they grew up playing golf. And that was the atmosphere at Hoylake uh, at that time. So it was a, once ball came along uh, in, in uh, I think he was born in 1861. And then he started to, to start doing stuff. And then Hilton came along. He was born in 1869, uh, the year the club started. And by that time, they had they had a lot of good young players. Um, and the standard of golf at the club was very, very good. And the, the membership was going up exponentially. And right. uh, it was getting noticed. And, um, and Ball was... You know, he, he was a wonderful player. I, did, I think uh, of all the players I would love to have seen, I think John Ball was the one. Darwin described him as having a beautiful golf swing, perhaps the most beautiful of all. And uh, and he was a tenant farmer. Um, his father was the proprietor of the, the Royal Hotel across the way with it. Right. Uh, the club used as a, a clubhouse until 1895. And uh, so John Ball was a proper golfer, and my understanding been... is he he missed at least two opens um, because he had to harvest. Yeah, I think the the real reason. Uh, yes, I, I think that's probably the case. But he first went up to Presswick as a, a boy. You know, he was fifteen or something like that, yeah. and. Uh, he went up with the pro Jack Morris, who was uh, Tom Morris's nephew, George Morris's son, and they went up to Presswick when when John Ball was about fifteen, and this was in the eighteen seventies, I think maybe eighteen seventy eight. I'd need to look that up, but so they went up to Presswick, and John Ball, as a boy, uh, finished tied fourth in the Open, and this was, you know, amazing. So. But he didn't really play much in the open thereafter uh, for quite a few years, and probably because he was working, maybe he didn't have the wherewithal. Or, um, but a lot of his best years were, you know, he reckoned he was he was better at eighteen or nineteen than he ever was later on, and he had a huge long career. Uh, but he travelled up to Presswick for the eighteen ninety open, and. Presswick had been extended about eight years previously to 18 holes. And so they played it over two rounds of 18. And uh, and he was 41 for each nine, went round at 164. It was a 36-hole championship. And he won the Open by three shots uh, from Archie Simpson and Willie Fernie. Uh, so he became the first... Englishman to win the amateur champ uh, to win the Open Championship, and he became the first amateur to win the Open Championship, wow. uh, which was pretty cataclysmic. It had been the the jurisdiction of the the gnarled Scottish pros up until then, right. and uh, so that that was a huge thing. But uh, well, the, well, then Harold Hilton won yeah. as an amateur, and then Bobby Jones was the last to do so. Correct. Yeah, that's correct. So the Hilton won two amateurs, uh, two opens, and uh, he won the. He was in his early twenties when he won the eighteen ninety two open at Muirfield, the first open that went 
that was held at Muirfield. Previously, the Honourable Company had held them at Musselburgh. Uh, so he won that championship with a, the great final round. And he then went on to, to win the 1897 uh, inaugural Open Championship at Hoylake. So to, to have your local amateur win the Open Championship at your home club for right. the first time must have been something else. And, I, and the, many people over the years said, well, who was the best player between Ball and Hilton? And I, I think they were very different golfers and the records were quite different. But I think the Hilton's win in 1897 was probably the, the greatest achievement in many ways because... By that time, by that time, the great triumvirate had come along, and uh, you know, once Barton, Braden, Taylor entered the fray, it was quite difficult to win opens. Um, yeah. And and I think Hilton's win was was probably the zenith of either of their achievements. But um, so that so that was a a great feeling for the for the club. Well, this is a great lead on talking about uh, Hilton and Ball. Tell us about. Uh, their impact on the club and on amateur golf in general, because it had to be substantial back then. Yes, they were hugely influential. Um, the ball, really, because of his, you know, he he was a very quiet man and unassuming man. He he sort of stayed away from the crowd. He stayed away from the dialogue, um, just by his sort of ambassadorial solidness i think he was he was a huge influence but um but hilton was a, a thinker and Dar darwin said of hilton he said there, there are few men that know know their subject well he said but harold hilton knew golf and uh and he was a writer uh, he wrote a lot he he did an instruction book he did he wrote another couple of books and uh, he was a great contributor to the correspondence of golf uh, of the day. And I think they were, you know, certainly once the, the 1900s came along and they were very influential in many ways. Although, you know, neither of them became captain at Royal Liverpool. Um, the story goes that John Ball was asked to be captain, but... Uh, that's pretty much shrouded in mystery. Um, but he wouldn't have accepted anyway. Um, and He yeah, really shunned the spotlight altogether, right? I remember there was a report of him coming yep. home from having won a tournament and yep. the club yeah, had he, arranged to meet him at the station and he heard about yeah. it and got off at the early, at an earlier that's stage. That's absolutely true. And uh, the it was, it was one of the amateurs he won at St. Andrews, I believe, but... Uh, but he was, uh, yes, he got prior notice that there was a bit of a celebration going on. And uh, I think it was just before the Boer War, actually. And uh, Ball went off to the Boer War and fought in the Boer War. He, he was a good shot because he was a, you know, he was a, a tenant farmer and they, you know, he was he was a crack shot. And they, they clubbed together to, to buy him a pony, a black pursuit of pony to take to... Uh, to take to the Cape, and uh, and he he was pretty fearless in the in the in the bowl world by all accounts, and and his his uh, his great arch rival uh, Freddie Tate from Scotland, 
who won an amateur championship at Hoylake, uh, was one of our great champions. Um, he he was killed yeah. uh, in the Boer War, and luckily for us, Paul came back and kept on winning amateur championships. And uh, he did get grazed by a bullet, though, right? He did, yeah, he did. Uh, his horse was shot out from under him, uh, and uh, and he was desperately. You know, he was heartbroken about the death of his horse, but uh, he was he was pretty fearless, I imagine. Yeah. Um, and but he but he came back and and Hilton, you know, had a, a renaissance. They both had a renaissance towards the end of the good golfing days, and uh, and Hilton won the amateur of nineteen eleven um, at Presswick, and. He very nearly won his third Open the same year at Royal St. George's. And he, he had a couple of bad holes towards the end. Otherwise, he was, he was right in there. And he went to America on the back of that and played in the, the U.S. Amateur at Apawamas in 1911 and, and won the U.S. Won Amateur. That, yeah. Led the qualifiers, won the U.S. Amateur. Yeah. Uh, he beat Fred Hedishoff at the 37th. In the final, and uh, you know, smoked 60, 60 untipped cigarettes a day, um, wore a tie throughout. You know, he must have sweated to death almost every time he went out, and uh, and he he won the, the U.S. Amateur Championship. So, yeah. so he became the first man to win the, the U.S. Amateur and the Amateur Championship in the same year. Uh, which has been repeated several times, but when Bobby Jones did it, of course. But uh, yeah. so uh, I think Lawson Little did it as well. But uh, so yes, it was uh, you know, and they lasted. You know, they they lasted. Hilton went down south and became a secretary of a golf club, and sort of, and then Ball retired to North Wales, um, although he still came back for the the major events um, and he visited for the Open when it came to Hoylick and things like that but uh, so you know neither of them you know neither of them died at Ho died in Hoylick and right. uh, they, 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 they just sort of went off to retire yeah. uh, gracefully but uh, we well you've desperate. studied you've studied a lot obviously about the history of Hoylick mm -hmm. and as you researched the book did you did you uncover anything Knew that that truly surprised you. Well, there were a couple of things. Um, you occasionally get a something that you thought was a fact that wasn't a fact. So, uh, you know, the golf history is is full of golfing myths. And if you read a a golf book, you know, it, it's a regurgitation of what someone said twenty years ago, thirty years ago, forty years ago, and and it becomes fact, but it actually isn't true. And uh, there were a couple of little things I picked up on. Uh, and one of them was um, about Tommy Armour. And Tommy Armour played in the match of against the American team in 1921. And uh, he played for the, the Great Britain team. And, and I researched Tommy Armour. Tommy Armour is a very interesting man. Um, in in so many ways, and um, I researched him, and every reference 
every textbook, every you know, they all say that he went to Petter's school in Edinburgh. He's a boarding school in Edinburgh, and uh, and I couldn't. And then one of my friends from Scotland said, but he, but he didn't go to Fetters. And I said, really? I said, he said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, well, I went to Fetters. And I, I said, I know for sure that, that uh, Tommy Armour didn't go there or I would have heard of it. And so I went trawling through all the, the newspapers of the day and uh, he didn't go to Fetters. He went to Daniel Stewart's college. So all, all the, the hundreds of writers over the years have, have done biographies and on Tommy Armour, they were all wrong because he, he didn't go to Fetter's school. And uh, the That's other one I came across was uh, Alan Graham, one of the, the Graham family. They were all very good golfers. And he got to the final of the 1921 Amateur Championship at Hoylake. And uh, and he, he was absolutely hammered in the final by Willie Hunter, who went... Who was was from Kent, son of a pro from Kent. He eventually went to America and, and played uh, professional golf in America. And uh, the it always said that uh, Jack Graham Senior, who was a past captain of our club and the father of Alan Graham, died on the eve of the final, and that's that's why he lost nine and eight or something like that. And because his mind was on other things, he's right. just. His father had died on the night before, and so I, I, I sort of looked at the dates and family trees. These days, you can you can find out just about everything. Right. And uh, and I, I was looking at the dates of the family tree, and I thought that that's you know in the the timeline of the championship and things. And um, I looked at it, and in actual fact, Jack Graham died about four or five weeks after the 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 final of that amateur championship. So everyone that's written about it since 1921 has has been wrong. Uh, <laughs> he didn't die on the eve of the final. Uh, he waited another three or four weeks. Uh, he was terminally ill at the time. And uh, so those were a couple of golfing myths that I'd busted. Um, and there were, there were a couple of other things that came up that some people have suggested that weren't in fact true so yeah it's like all history it's uh right it's, it's what someone says at the time and uh you really need you really need to get into the nitty-gritty to find out if it's true or not but, uh, well you brought up that competition in 1921 and it was the first international competition between the u.s great britain and ireland yeah. or just great britain not ireland yeah and um, it was what was to become or what did become the Walker Cup. But the teams yeah. that were assembled were absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Can, I, can you I, tell us about that? Okay. Well, the it's quite an interesting time of history because uh, I have a theory that the Great War, the First World War, did so much damage to our society and our country in many ways uh it took us many many years to recover from that financially and and uh it killed a lot of our young men and it put golf back uh in the uk i don't know it it, it sort of stopped it in its tracks really uh whereas in the us golf continued and everything went 
you know, was going pretty much as normal apart from a year or two. Uh, so the it was Bill Phones from uh, Oakmont who wanted to take a, a US team over uh, ostensibly to play in the amateur championship at Hoylake and the Open Championship at St Andrews in 1921. And uh, and the, the powers that be at St Andrews somewhat reluctantly agreed to uh, to host them as a, as a team and they, they played at Hoylake. But, uh, but the team assembled by the Americans was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Jones, Wiemet, Guilford, uh, Chick Evans, Wood Platt, Fred Wright, uh, who was, was a good player. They, they had a chap called Hunter, who was a doctor from California. Uh, so they were just, by their achievements by then and the achievements thereafter, they, they, perhaps the most talented side to come out of America. And uh, and we had what we thought was a pretty good side. And then, well, you had around. you had Cyril Tolley and mm-hmm. Tolley and Roger Weathered. Roger Weathered and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let, Tommy Armour. One, yeah, t- Tommy Armour. Tommy Armour was quite young at the time. He was he was severely injured in the war. Uh, he lost an eye. He had a, you know, he had a plate in his arm. He had a brain injury. He, you know, he was basically left for dead. And and he part of his rehabilitation was getting back to golf in Edinburgh. And uh, so it was a pretty good side we had. And uh, you know, some of some of the players that were pretty good before the war, were a little bit older and not quite so good after the war. And we were absolutely battered by the American team. Um, and the club historian, the, the Guy Farrer, who wrote the first history of the club in 1933, he was, uh, you know, he was crestfallen that, that this this was a very dark day. And, uh, and Darwin was... You know, he couldn't believe what was happening, and uh, and uh, th- this was the, you know, this, this was what was to come. And Jones was nineteen; he just turned nineteen at that time, and he was just bouncing. You can see the smile on his. You could almost feel the energy coming from him from the pictures. Very, very different from the man that came over for the nineteen thirty Open. Yeah. And uh, so the it then became the Walker Cup. Uh, Walker had, had originally intended to be an international golf event um, rather than for a match. But, uh, but, but there was so little international golf played at that time. And uh, it then was dubbed by the press as the Walker Cup. And they, so, so they went over uh, in 1922 and they played for the first Walker Cup. Um, and I think it was at the National actually and uh, and it was then played annually for about four years and then it became a biannual event uh, biannual event um, and we've hosted it a couple of times at Hoylake uh, 1983 and we hosted it in, in 2019 which was our 150th uh, celebration year and so Great event to have in your 150th. You know, you, you don't want to you don't want an open because that's just too disruptive. But uh, get them all over for a week and have a bit of a party and weekend golf and uh, yeah. 
it's the perfect event to have in your in your for your 150th. So uh, yeah, yeah. So the Walker Cup, uh, you know, we hosted the first amateur international uh, between England and Scotland in 1902, which was another first for for Hoylake and at really the instigation of the club. Um, and there's a, there's a famous uh, picture by Michael Brown of that event in 1902. Yeah. But, uh, so we've, we've hosted lots of great amateur events. Uh, we've hosted 18 amateur championships, uh, which we started as, as, as well. And I, right. it, I'm, not, I'm not boasting about this. This is just stuff that happened. And it's really... Uh, the early men were influential. They were ambitious. They they weren't pushy, but they were uh, you know they, they knew how to get things done. Really. Well, you've not only hosted eighteen amateur championships, you've hosted quite a few open championships, and sure. it seems that uh, every year that the open is held, the NR the RNA wants to identify the very best golfer in the field. And and Hoy Lake has done just that. I mean, when you look at the list of winners, I mean, yeah. going back to the very beginning, and I'm going to skip one of them, but you've got J.H. Taylor, Arno Massey, um, Walter Hagen, uh, Peter Thompson, Tiger Woods, um, and I'm skipping a couple like Fred Day, yeah. like the people here would know, Roy McIlroy. Yeah. Yeah. And then you had two amateurs, right? You had yeah. um, Hilton oh, and then Bobby Jones. What, yeah. what about – Royal Liverpool brings out the best play. From uh, the I I don't know. Maybe maybe we're, you know, I, I think I think we've been lucky. Uh, I think the luck plays a huge part in this, and I think you've got to be, you know, you've just got to be sitting on the seat when the music stops, and you take your chances with your champion. But but thinking about it a little a little bit more carefully, I think I think Hoylake's very honest. I think it's it's an honest links. Uh, it you know you you get what you deserve at Hoy Lake, uh, which is not always the case at, at every open venue. So I think it's honesty, um, and it's a ball strikers course. It's a you know it's it's a you know it's a drivers course. It's a you know it's a it's a proper golfers golf course and. Uh, and I, I, I think it's just that's probably what does it. I think, but uh, but by and large, it's luck. And I think this year, you know, all, all we can hope for is good weather and a great champion. But but it, that comes down to luck. You, there are two things that you can't control: uh, the weather and who wins your championship. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll hopefully, tell you. Hopefully, our luck our luck keeps going, and uh, we we get. You know, so, you know, Scotty Scheffler or John Ram or, you know, someone at the peak of his powers uh, yeah. to win at Hoy Lake this year. But um, well, I'll tell you what, 2006 really put not that Hoy Lake needed to be put on the map um, anywhere but the U.S. But in the U.S., it really came to the forefront because it was such a wonderful championship. Um, and it appeared as though. Uh, particularly in the third and fourth rounds, that it was a match play event between Chris DeMarco and Tiger Woods. And um, yeah. both of them had recently lost parents and 
Yeah. The storylines yeah. were amazing. And the, and I think Tiger got to 18 under to win. And how did the members feel about the play that week? And were they surprised that anyone got to 18 under? Not really. Yeah. I think um, I think we were quite relieved it didn't go lower than that. Uh, the The scoring was the scoring was good, but you know, the score of uh, two seventy really isn't you know these days for an Open Championship it's not that low. So yeah. well, there there have been many lower totals in the Open subsequently. Um, we also played at par 72. Uh, this year it's going to be par 71. Uh, so that'll take four shots off it. Uh, and I, I don't I don't think par really matters. I, I, I couldn't care less. You know, they've had 62s at Birkdale. They've had 63s at Troon. Uh, they, haven't had, they haven't had very many low rounds at Hoylake. Um, there may be some this year. But uh, I, th- I think the, the most important thing is that you have a championship that people remember, and that you get a really good champion. And I think, right. I think it, the score is neither here nor there. The, you know, you, you can't compare scores between venues. I don't think, but uh, right. the, you know, you, you just have to set it up fairly. You need to set it up tough but fair. Uh, and you roll the dice and you take your chance. Um, well, there was a there was an absence uh, of the open at Hoylake for nearly forty years. Is there? Yeah. What was behind that? Right. Okay. Well, I don't want to be controversial. I'm just curious. No, 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 no. It's a sort of combination of things, and the I would say that the opens in the late late sixties, with the probable exception of 1969, uh, when Jacqueline won at Lytham. The Opens in the late 60s were pretty small Opens, and uh, the Open wasn't a huge deal in the 60s. Uh, golf wasn't a big deal in the 60s, and I think it was only, you know, Nicholas's win in 70 at St. Andrews was quite a big Open, then Trevino's Open at Birkdale 71 and Muirfield 72. The Open was starting to get big, and lot the crowds increased hugely the the uh, tented village got an awful lot bigger the the infrastructure that you needed to to host a championship increased significantly and i think the open became big in the 70s right. and you know the palmer was still playing nicholas was still winning open it was uh, it was big stuff and it really Outgrew our capacity at that time to to host the championship, um, and there was a sort of resignation within the club, and to, to some extent that you know, Hoylake was no longer uh, you know it was no longer big enough to host the Open, and we'd be quite happy hosting the Amateur Championship, and uh, there was it, we were sort of resigned to that in some ways, and. And it was only, gosh, it was only in the 80s and 90s that, you know, we, we really started to up the game again. And, you know, the course improved an awful lot in condition. And uh, we, had a very, we had two very good amateur championships in the 90s. Um, and 
you know, we bought some land uh, right next to the club and that helped a lot. Uh, yeah. So we yeah. we then had the, the, the sort of footprint that could manage an open championship. Uh, so, you know, we were thrilled when, when it came back, certainly. Uh, you know, I think Hoylake deserves to be an open venue. Um, and, you know, we, we're fortunate to continue to do that. Uh, but I think the... It also mirrored the, you know, the 70s in the UK weren't great, certainly the end of the 70s. And, uh, you know, money was tight and heavy industry declined. And there was an awful lot of relative poverty. And Liverpool is one of those cities that, yeah. you know, when times are bad, you know, times in Liverpool are worse. Uh, and, you know, there wasn't a lot of money in the city. Um, and it was it was just a, a a sort of not a great time for the area really, and I think uh, it wasn't a great time for our club uh, yeah. for you know not hosting open and uh, contributed to that. But uh, but every, everything goes up and down, and and uh, you know things things are on a much better trajectory now. But. Um, and it wasn't really anybody's fault. I think it, right. it, uh, you know, I can't really say it was lack of ambition. It was probably lack of money. Uh, and, you know, I think it was just a casualty of the, the, the cycle of what was happening at the time. Really. Yeah. Um, well, well, you've been a member now for 35 plus years. You've seen a lot of change. Yeah. Um, you know all about the history um, not just the, the history of the club, but the, the the history of amateur play there and the great champions that have come from there. What about Hoy Lake? Are you most proud of? Uh, right. Okay. Uh, the thing I'm most proud of um, it's a golf club. It's it's a golfer's club. It's 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 not for anything else. It's. Uh, we have a we have a lovely clubhouse and that's fantastic. But you know you you don't go there to you know to sit in the clubhouse. You go there to play golf and uh, it's a golfer's club and it has golf going through it. Uh, that I like that. I love its heritage. Um, it has it has heritage. Probably you know the the only place it would be. Would surpass us is, is St Andrews and the, you know, the RNA at St Andrews. Beyond that, I think our heritage is, you know, it's right up there. It's world class. Yeah. Um, great stories, great history, great heritage. The the other thing, I, it's a very friendly club. It's a very uh, inclusive club. It's it's. You know, it, it's a nice place to be a member. There are lots of really nice people there, and it doesn't have a lot of airs or graces. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you know, the it's just it's just an easy place to be a member, and yeah. I'm, I'm proud to be a member. Um, well, what can what can what can visitors expect when we send people there? What what can they expect when they visit Royal Liverpool? Okay, they, they can expect a, a warm welcome. Yeah. 
our welcome is second to none. Uh, and they can expect people to be nice to them. And people will be interested in their play. And people will be interested in where they come from and, you know, how they enjoyed themselves. And uh, they'll be looked after. They'll be looked after and be treated. We don't have a visitor's locker room at Hoylake. Uh, everyone changes in the same place. And, uh, you know, they're members for the day. Uh, and, and they're treated as such. And that's the... That's a big part of our brand, really. Um, you know, I, I think that's very important. And it, it's something we're... Uh, I don't know. It, it's something that we're conscious of. Uh, and I, th I, th I think that's very important. Uh, you know, we've all got stories of places where you didn't feel welcome. And right. you, you don't go back, usually. But, right. Uh, so uh what can they expect they, they can expect uh they can expect a breezy day it's a very exposed links um the the greens will be good the fairways will be good um and you'll have a good day that's yeah. that's, that's what you should expect but uh i will yes i i I think that sort of sums us up, really. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Some people might have different things to look for. But... No, I, I agree with everything you said. It's a uh, it's a wonderful golf course. It's a very you do get a wonderful welcome. Um, the service that you receive there is excellent. It's it's a wonderful experience. So we're we're thrilled when we can get people to go there. Now I got Good. one last question for you. Yeah. Most of the people that we send over are coming over for the first time. Okay. So for someone visiting England to pay, play golf for the first time, they're going to play Lynx golf. What advice do you have for them? Okay. Uh, well, I've, I've hosted many Americans who subsequently become my friends for the first time on, on playing the Lynx. And I think the best advice is be prepared. Uh, you know, bring some bring some good good quality rain gear with you uh the cheap stuff won't cut it really yeah. uh bring a woolly hat it sometimes gets a bit chilly uh and be prepared for anything really the best advice i you know most of the people i've played with over the years americans and and uh the the best advice is you know look at your ball flight before you come over and you need to be able to vary that ball flight accordingly and you know the, the American when he first comes over and steps on the first tee and he said you know how far how far is it and I said, I said well you want to hit it about you know 190 or something and I said but the, the wind's coming in off the left and you know you it's cool and you probably need more club. He says, well, what sort of shot is that? He says, is that a 205 shot? And I said, well, you know, a 205 shot doesn't mean very much in a wind. It's, uh, you know, it's the flight that you want to right. think about. And if you hit the ball, if you get the right flight on it, you can then think about how far you're hitting it. Because because uh, if you play an American high spinning, high flying shot, you'll, 
you know, you lose a lot of balls on the way around. Um, so, so I, I think that would be the, the things I would, uh, you know, think about your ball flight before you come over because you're going to need to vary that, and uh, and be prepared to run the ball onto the green when you can, um, you know, and, and a shot landing by the flag on a links course is often not what you really want. Right. So, uh, so it's a different game. It's a, it's a strategic game. It's a, it's a feel game. It's a, it's a, it's a two dimensional game. It's yeah. uh, it's different, but I, I love playing golf in America, but, uh, but the links golf's my passion. Really. Right. Uh, yeah. I feel the same way. I feel the same way. Well, that's wonderful advice. And that's, before I come over every year, I spend a couple of weeks at the range working on a low ball flight and hit how to hit a, a low boring shot. Yep. And um, yeah, yeah I've got it. very fond memories of having played um, Boy Lake and yeah, I can't wait to get back. But yeah, Blake, this has been a great pleasure. We, I am, we're thrilled that you could join us. You're a wonderful ambassador for the club and um, for golf historians, it's it's been fascinating to hear your perspective, uh, perspectives, I should say. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure, Chad. And uh, I will certainly look you up the next time I'm over in Atlanta. Absolutely, we'll we'll get around together. I promise. Thank you. It's a pleasure, guys. Again, thank you for tuning in. Uh, if you enjoyed it, please share. Uh, if you know somebody who's watching the Open this week, um, please shoot them the video. Uh, I'm sure they would love to hear from a past club champion, past captain, uh, member at Hoy Lake. So uh, thank you so much, and we'll see you tomorrow.